Welcome back to In-Depth Commercial Real Estate. This show is an open discussion of the people, ideas, and methods behind commercial real estate. I'm your host, Paul Eaton. Our guests today are Greg Lyon and Patrick Winters. Greg and Patrick are principals at Nadell Architects, a leading Los Angeles architectural and design firm. Greg and Patrick, thank you uh, for coming on to the podcast today. You're welcome. We're happy to be here. Thank you very much. Likewise. What were your paths into architecture as well as your areas of focus? Patrick, you want to tackle that first? You know, my path into architecture really started pretty early. I always wanted to be an architect, and I had an initial early focus on that. And although I didn't really act on it right away, eventually I got a master's degree in architecture at UC Berkeley, which to me at that time felt like it was a culmination of all of my interests and so forth that I'd explored. I was into art, I was into literature, I was into photography. And, you know, finally I was able to bring a lot of that together when I was able to attend grad school at UC Berkeley. My focus in architecture has evolved a whole bunch over the course of my career. I started out working for a gentleman in San Francisco named Stanley Seidowitz, who was a professor at Berkeley and I think still just an excellent, excellent architect. Then I came to LA and I worked for 10 years for a gentleman named Barton Myers, who's a professor at UCLA, but also a fairly well-known architect here in Los Angeles. And, you know, we did a lot of work like theaters and public work. And then later, after about 10 years at Barton's, I wanted to sort of take a, what I call it my sabbatical, although I'm not an academic. And I went to New York for two, three years, and I worked at a variety of firms, including Gensler, a big firm. Ended up coming back to LA, and I worked for another 10 years at NBBJ, a very large firm based in Seattle, but six, 700-person firm. I ended up leaving there, not sure I wanted to work for another big firm, and then sort of casting about, looking for another opportunity. And I Herb Nadell, who is our founder, offered me this opportunity to come here and sort of go after my own clients and so forth. And that's how I ended up getting the project in Jordan, because while I was at NBBJ, I started doing a lot of work in the Middle East. And so I brought that client to Nadell when I came. You know, since that time, which was 13, 14 years ago now, a lot of stuff has changed. I find myself really involved with an area of architecture that I've really always been interested in, and that is in housing. So most of my time here at the firm now is spent in the area of housing, also hospitality, but I'm also kind of overseeing all of the stuff in the firm that is not strictly retail. So I still have my hands on a lot of different kinds of projects, but my focus right now is in the area of housing, particularly multifamily housing and, and all its varieties. And just to add to that, mixed use as well, Patrick, which of course includes, in addition to multifamily, retail hospitality, commercial uses. So Yeah, a lot of the housing here in LA has at least some commercial retail mixed use component for sure. And I guess, Paul, my uh, entree into architecture is the absolute opposite of Patrick. I didn't have any thought of being an architect until I was in my late 20s. I um, you know, dropped out of university for a while and then found my way back into university at 24. And then of all things, I'm a UCLA graduate, uh, undergrad and graduate, so a, a UC alumni like Patrick. But I went into art history, which uh, was a wonderful major, although I didn't know what I was thinking from a professional perspective. And towards the end of getting my degree, which by that point I was 28, I had an existential crisis and realized, what am I going to do with an art history degree? And so then there was a graduate program at UCLA which that's all they had. They didn't have an undergraduate program. And it seemed to me my interest in 
art history and architectural history and just other interests kind of triangulated around this idea of architecture as a profession. And so literally a month before the deadline, I applied for the graduate program for architecture at UCLA, managed to get in because I had a lot of uh, kind of fine art experience too, so I could put a portfolio together. And I managed to get in and then studied architecture on the graduate level for three years at UCLA. And that was kind of how I got into the profession. And then right after the profession, I ended up in a... Uh, a practice that focused on sports and entertainment, doing a lot of large stadium work and arena work. And at that point, the way they were approaching sports venues was as a subset of entertainment, which is true. That's really what it is. And that's how we've come to understand it nowadays. And then from there, I moved into the recreational entertainment industry, meaning working for Universal Studios, Landmark Entertainment, Paramount Studios on their recreational side, working with their entertainment destinations. And that was an amazing learning experience. And then when 9-11 hit, that industry really suffered. So kind of had to find a new home for the experience I'd gathered because I certainly didn't have the experience to go to an architecture firm and work on, you know, uh, educational work or medical work or those type of uses. And just at that point, you know, in the early 2000s is when retail was starting to become a subset of entertainment destinations as well. And what I mean by that is really, you know, environments like the Grove here in Los Angeles and lifestyle centers where they were kind of heavily entertainment enhanced environments with all the, the the pop jet fountains, the trolley cars, what you saw in Vegas with Caesars Forum shops. And that's how I actually ended up in retail is through the entertainment industry. And retail since then has really kind of remained in that arena, at least, you know, a large component of it. And as you mentioned, there's also the daily needs and the service-oriented retail and stuff like that. But kind of that's kind of been my focus and bias in retail is understanding it through the filter of that third place where people go and spend their discretionary and leisure time in a sense. So that was kind of my path. Well, let's talk a little bit about the project in Amman, Jordan. I believe that Nadel was the lead architect of the Galleria located in Amman, Jordan. I think it was about 1.1 million square feet, multi-level, mixed-use enclosed mall. I think it was completed in, I think, around 2011. Can you tell me more about that project? Sure. The Galleria Mall came through, I had already joined Nadell at that point, and the Galleria Mall came through clients that I had initially met at my experience at a previous firm. And at that firm, I had started working in, in a few Middle Eastern countries, including Qatar and UAE, Dubai. But I'd also done a project in Jordan called the Housing Bank for Trade and Finance for a client there. And in the course of that job, I worked with a local architect as executive architect who was called Arab Tech Jardani, and they had their headquarters in Amman. After I'd come to Nadel, Arab Tech Jardani contacted me and said, we have a client who wants to build this mall. It's in, right in the middle of Amman, Jordan, on a place called the Seventh Circle. But we need an American design architect to do it. He wants someone with uh, American architectural firm experience and so forth, and we would be the executive architect. And so we started talking to Arab Tech about that. And eventually, I came over to Jordan and met the client, who's a gentleman named Semir Tawil. And Mr. Tawil 
who's originally from Syria, had been uh, a cabinet member in the Jordanian government and now had become a, a real estate developer. And the project was his project, and it was a, a major project for Amman. And it was in a district in Amman called the Swafia district, which was the traditional retail district. And at that point, there were three or four players, let's call them, who were in the, also in the course of or having just completed building malls in, in and around that district. Most of them were much smaller than the Galleria Mall ended up being, but the Galleria Mall was intended to be the premier, really, shopping destination that would, just by virtue of its number of shops and square feet, would capture a lot of the traffic that was already there. And a lot of the traffic that was already there, ironically enough, was foot traffic. It's a very, very dense, intense retail district. What are some of the differences between working on a project in the Middle East as opposed to the United States? Well... You know, where do I start in a way? <laughs> I would say that focusing on this mall project, you know, I think if you're working for a large mall developer in the United States, it's such a mature market. You know, there's going to be a million statistics and, you know, regional studies and demographics and catchment areas and all of the stuff that assignment center or someone like that would have laid out in front of you before anything is done. Not so, at least at that time in Amman, Jordan. And really, my subsequent experience was not show, so in, in Dubai and, and maybe Abu Dhabi. Jordan is still a small country. It's still a country where, you know, the economic system's totally different and you have people who have a vision and they get that vision done a little more directly, a little more quickly and by their own vision than I think really exists in the United States anymore. I don't think if someone sat down, did an economic study and so forth and put all those numbers together in Amman, would that have penciled out, quote unquote, in the way that it would have been expected to here? I don't, I don't think it probably would have. So you really have someone who's much more of an entrepreneurial individual driving major, major decisions, not entirely on his own, but certainly primarily through his own personal vision. This brings to mind some changes that we're seeing in retail and retail architecture in the United States. We're not seeing too many ground-up developments of traditional enclosed malls in the U.S. currently. Do you think there's an appetite for this type of project or other enclosed malls in the U.S. currently? I find the discussion of enclosed retail environments versus open air to be kind of more of a fashion or trend. I think there was a period when malls were challenged because of the way that they're structured as this kind of very efficient vehicle for shopping. They were like barbelled by two anchors, you know, a Macy's and a Bloomingdale's or a Sears and a JCPenney's. And then you had inline retailers along the inside of the mall. And it'd be one story or two stories. And then you had a food court. And I think that as a blend of uses is what became problematic. And I think there was a while back maybe in the late 90s and early 2000s where I think that um, – a lot of the development community thought, well, the issue is that it's enclosed and let's make it open air. And so that term came about open air centers, which really what open air centers meant is it was outdoors. But in addition to that, it was the blend of uses that started to shift. It started to become more culinary centric with food opportunities, a little bit more high street retail, maybe not the typical large anchors that you find in a mall, and then more area development and entertainment enhanced development, more stuff to hang out and do in the common areas. As I said, entertainment enhanced things, water features, outdoor community engagement, living room spaces. And so at that point, 
people thought, well, it's because it's an open air center and it's not an enclosed. But then you saw what Westfield started to do when they came in and started to buy defunct malls throughout the country. And as opposed to just ripping the roofs off all of them, they started to treat them like lifestyle centers and improve the quality of the tenants, improve the quality of the dining experience. So it wasn't a food court anymore. It was a dining terrace or even better, a food hall. And then also to greet better common area amenities for families and people to spend time at the mall. And so what I really believe is happening is that you're going to find both enclosed retail experiences and open air retail experiences to continue to evolve. And really, to me, it's a question of the area, the, the region of the country. And we're currently repositioning a mall out in the Coachella Valley, out by Palm Springs right now. And initially, when the client bought the enclosed mall, they thought, well, let's rip off the roof and turn it into this open air lifestyle center. And then when they started to speak to the community out there locally, they said, wait a second, it's 120 degrees here in the summer. We like it when we can walk into an air-conditioned space and enjoy ourselves for a couple of hours. And it's the same thing when I've worked with clients up in Canada, in Calgary, and they thought, well, we can't have an enclosed mall. Well, no, actually, an enclosed mall is a really good idea in Calgary or in Vancouver. So I think that the idea of that quick fix of just malls don't work is not accurate when it comes to open air versus enclosed. It's really about the blend of uses and the environment you're creating and what the desire is for the local community regionally and when it comes to weather. So it's just not such a simple fix. It's really understanding what you're trying to achieve and what uses are going to go into there. So a large majority of retail spending in the U.S. continues to come through bricks and mortar. Absolutely. You know, that was the Sears catalog of the 50s and a couple of the other big department stores that had catalogs, they actually took a bigger chunk out of the brick and mortar sales than the internet ever has. So that's just an interesting statistic. I don't remember the exact numbers, but you can quote me on the fact that that's a fact. And then even so, you know, now there's still things that you can't do online. Just from a retail perspective, you can't get your hair cut online. You can't get your nails done. You know, you can't go have a great dining experience and sit down at a restaurant and be served. And so there's a lot of things that are just absolutely, they can never go online. And then another example is during the pandemic, if there was any moment in history when everything was going to go online, all shopping, it would have been during this pandemic. But what did we see across the country? If you had a center that had a grocery store and had a drugstore, and it had a lot of QSRs, meaning quick service restaurants like your Jamba Juices or your Chipotles. And you had drive-through pad buildings, Starbucks drive-throughs, et cetera. They were killing it. They were busy 24 hours seven. You couldn't have enough car queuing. You saw lines around the block to get into a Rouse or get into a CVS or get into a Trader Joe's. So that showed just the sustainability of retail that it will always thrive in any environment albeit the complexion of uses is going to change. So I always think it's a mistake when we think about retail as it's either movie theater anchored or it is daily need anchored because what we're doing, if we're in the business of developing retail environments or designing retail environments, is it's really creating that place that people go and spend their discretionary time and their leisure time. It's that third place that we go, that living room for the community, that super regional destination, that community engagement space. And the complexion is always going to change. 
that's what happens with retail. Sometimes it's going to be more, you know, lifestyle centric with the Lululemons and the active wear and the wellness. Other times it's going to be more culinary centric or it might be more local neighborhood service centric things that people need to go, you know, to get in their local community from dry cleaning to their pharmacy. So the complexion is always going to change, but online shopping is not going to erase the desire for people to go and gather in places and hang out and spend time multi-generationally and spend money. That's not going anywhere in that. And so I'd like to say we're really not in the retail business. If you're a retail developer or you're a retail designer, you're really in what I call the RD&E space, which is retail, dining, and entertainment. That's what we do. So I just think we're asking the wrong question when we say, is online shopping going to get rid of retail environments. It's the wrong question from my perspective. It's how are the places that we go and hang out going to change? That's the question. So we both agree that, you know, retail is going to be here for a long, long time. And the majority of spending currently in the U.S. and around the world is through bricks and mortar. But the rise of online retail has created some winners and losers. I would think that there are some commodity big box retailers like Sears that are losers. And that's resulting in a lot of changes in retail. Have you seen some changes in retail architecture as a result of this new competitive marketplace where you have these winners and losers and how is architecture changing some of the developments to maybe reuse these big box retailers and cater to these placemaking developments? Absolutely. I'll answer the first part to your question, which you are correct. There's always winners and losers. And I think that's what's exciting about the retail industry is that there's always some type of headwinds that change what we're doing. And if some of the large boxes go online because they're commodity driven and that is the competitive edge that online has, that's terrific because we don't need five different brands of soft goods stores where you go in to buy towels. If you can buy terrific towels online, then that's the marketplace. And so I honestly see that as a good thing because always it's a disruptor and a disruptor creates new visions and new opportunities for new developers and new brands to come up and fill those spaces and uses with new needs. So that's a positive thing. So having said that, yeah, how has it changed architecture? Well, the first thing you said is that, of course, let's talk about because there's ground up and there's repositioning of existing assets. So certainly the simplest is the reuse of big boxes. And that's all of the above. Sometimes the large boxes And actually, let me preface that by saying one thing that's interesting. If you look at a lot of what was the big boxes, Target, Staples, Bed Bath Beyond, a lot of them are coming back now and looking at smaller footprint prototypes. So, you know, what was 50,000 or 25,000, now they're looking at a 12,000 box. Or what was 100,000 square foot Target Center now is a city target and it could be, you know, 50,000 square feet, I don't know, or 25. And so they're adjusting. And what they found a lot of these brands is that, If they reduce a store in a certain zip code, the online sales remain strong and the in-store impulse buys, getting some stuff for the kids because they're going back to school and you don't have time, remain intact. But if they close that store and that zip code, the online sales and that zip code drop as well. 
So there's still an importance from an advertising perspective and from a branding perspective and being ubiquitous in the industry. There still is value to having locations in zip codes, number one. So I just also said, too, the first obvious thing is they're shrinking their footprints. So in terms of adaptive reuse for large, let's say a large Kmart that's 100,000 square feet, we're seeing all kinds of things. We've broken those up into other brands, uh, you know, where you have a drugstore like a Sprouts and you have a Sport Authority when Sport Authority existed or a Steinmart or something. We've seen it broken up into non-retail uses where it's essential needs like a police station or a, a urgent care center or, a, um, you know, a, a fire station. So those type of uses. We've also seen hybrid uses where you, the front half of the building remains retail and then the back half becomes a gym use or a public storage use. And we've also seen it turned into food halls that we're doing that right now because that's kind of a hot commodity right now is tried, trying to uh, reposition a large box into a food hall dining experience basically. So those are all the uses with big boxes. When it comes to just repositioning a center, or a ground-up center, one of the big changes that has come out of, I think, both it was started with online sales and then accelerated with the pandemic is the environment as the anchor. And by that, I mean that, of course, because people can go online to buy a lot of their commodities, you need to create an experience that, as I said before, becomes the living room for the community or the community engagement space where you can actually monetize common area development. Prior to all of this, a lot of times the development community said, listen, I have my anchors. I know I'm going to have my shoppers. I don't want to spend a lot of money on landscape area development, places for people to sit down and gather in multi-generational groups and eat outside and common area seating and all that kind of stuff. And now what started to happen with online sales and then especially now with the pandemic is the ability to monetize common area amenities. And what I mean by that is if you have safe outdoor space where people can socially distance but gather, you're going to draw people to your center because if they have a couple of hours that they want to spend and they have a choice, well, over here, there's not really a place where we can grab some food and sit outside and eat and watch the our children play in the kids' play zone and kind of stroll around. Let's go to the center across the street because they have all those common area amenities and they have more outdoor dining opportunities at the different venues. And they have a inline QSR and a food hall where we can go and we can sit outside and have this space. So that's drawing visitation to that center. It's making people return there more often and staying longer when they're there. So now I think for the first time, developers are really realizing, there's always been developers out there that have always you know, worked in that capacity, but a lot didn't. And now I think they're realizing there's a real dollar of value associated with being sure that you spend money on those components that you can't necessarily say, okay, this I'm leasing for, you know, X amount of dollars per square foot, but they know it's going to create an environment that's going to, like I said, increase visitation, increase length of stay, and increase return visitation. Patrick, I want to ask you about the nexus of multifamily, remote working, and co-working. So I say in the last four or five or six years, we've seen this rise of WeWork, you know, co-working, and remote working in the last 18 months, obviously. Are you seeing or are we going to see or do you anticipate seeing multifamily developments incorporating a space for co-working? Absolutely. But before I get into detail on that, let me just go back one moment. Mm -hmm. I agree with everything Greg said about repositioning of the retail and the evolution of retail. I think, though, part of that that he didn't mention, though, is 
retail is not only evolving in and of itself, but he kind of mentioned this idea of even essential services like a police station or a city hall or an urgent care. I think also what we're seeing is more and more developers who would never previously even consider having anything other than a retail operation going, considering absolutely residential, absolutely hospitality as part of their evolutionary thinking. And this ties into a whole bunch of trends. You know, nobody wants surface parking lots anymore. People, you know, all the changes in transportation. But I think first and foremost that if people used to go out on the street to play or find entertainment in other areas, that, and, and now they're doing it in conjunction with retail, to really get the feet on the ground, to really make those lively places, uh, everyone has come around to understanding that they've got to have other uses in there as well, and that this residential and hospitality uses are just going to make that retail component that much more vibrant. Coming back to your question about the co-working having an effect, yeah, absolutely. There's lots and lots of work being done. To give you an example, if you have a one-bedroom apartment with a couple who's now both co-working or living and remotely working from home, how do you make that feasible? And there's there's different solutions. Can you have a nook in the bedroom and a nook in the living room and the ability not just to be visually separate, but to be acoustically separate? And especially that acoustical separation issue is becoming more and more important because just as I am on this teleconference with you right now, if there was another person in the room, it would be very disruptive. I think it's intuitive. So a lot of, let's call it in-unit stuff that is happening in terms of tweaking the floor plan without, of course, and this is essential, necessarily adding large amounts of square footage. We're talking about 15, 20, 25 square feet per unit being added to this in the case of one bedroom at most, simply because of the cost factor, which is already so challenging. There are many other things happening outside the unit in terms of various amenities, co-working facilities, et cetera, where you can have something like a WeWork operation going where you're alone together. That alone together concept out, outside the unit is a very big deal in residential right now. I'd like to ask a question about clients. What is the most common mistake that you see clients make? Patrick, you want to tackle that first? I'll give it a shot. That's a tough question, this one. But I would have to say probably coming to the table somewhat unprepared Someone unprepared to deal with the choices that they're facing and are going to have to work their way through. Toughest part of our job is simply getting decisions from the client because they're just overwhelmed with information because they're doing their day jobs, which is paying their own mortgages or whatever other business operations that they have, and not really being able to devote the resources to project development in conjunction with us that probably should be. I'd say... um which is becoming, as I mentioned, less of a challenge in the, you know, RD&E space, retail, dining, and entertainment, is historically been really trying to value engineer the um, the common area amenities and the placemaking aspects that you had mentioned earlier, Paul, and really not believing that that has as much relevance or importance to the success of the center as it has. So that's always been a challenge. And I think the clients who recognize that, the value of that, and do build it into their budget to achieve that, you know, environment or goal at the end, end up with a more successful center. It's challenging when you're going through the process and you're trying to save money to really look at softscape and hardscape and environmental graphics and other 
common area amenities and not just want to cut that out to save money on the budget. And those things are really, in a retail environment, they're as important as the architecture. Do you have any books you'd recommend for people who are not architects, but are involved in the development process, for example, developers or engineers? What do you think, Patrick? You know, there's a very good general audience architecture book that was, um, I think, on the New York Times bestseller list. It was called The Architecture of Happiness by Elaine de Bolton, I think is his name, which is quite a good read. And I think it encapsulates a lot of current architectural thinking into a compact format, really geared toward what people want, what's going to make them keep coming back, what's going to keep them satisfied and happy in a way that is different than the way things were done in the past. I'm not going to suggest any type of uh, book because I generally don't read books on architecture. I read books on, you know, other things, books about business and uh, those type of uh, reads. So I could make a lot of recommendations when it comes to that. But I would say, as opposed to reading, I think that retail developers really should look at, as I said, other destinations that they don't necessarily think are as tangential to retail environments as they actually are. Look at what's happening on a super regional level with theme parks, with sporting centers and the all the ancillary, you know, uses that are there with the restaurants and the dining and start to really understand those business models, how they work, how they draw people in, how they keep people there and what they're doing. And, you know, you take something like a theme park like Disneyland and when you really start to dial in, it really is a retail environment and that's where they make their money. They don't make their money off selling the tickets to get in. They don't make their money off the rides. Those are the anchors. They make their money off uh, food and merchandise, basically, and building an environment that's going to keep people there and keep people spending money on those items. So I think there's a lot to be learned in retail when you really start to study those type of environments and, frankly, just Main Street retail to really learn from what happens when you have a downtown street and how those uses come together and create a viable community. And that is kind of like circling back around to Patrick's point, which is that uses beyond just retail and retail environments, we're seeing more and more of medical uses, wellness uses, all kinds of things. And if you really walk down any main street USA, you're not going to see pure retail. You're going to see retail. You're going to see a dentist office next to it. You're going to see, you know, a hair salon. You're going to see a gym and all these different uses. And somehow they organically come together and create a place. And I think there's a lot to be learned by observing these environments and watching the way people shop and interact in them. So that's what my advice would be is that's all around us. Just get out there and look at it and you'll start to understand a lot more about retail environments. Well, Greg and Patrick, Thanks for coming on the show today. The show notes will have more information about Greg, Patrick, and Nadell, as well as any book that was recommended. Thanks again. I appreciate it. You got it. Thank you, Paul. Thank you, Paul. You can find Greg and Patrick's contact information in the show notes. We'll also leave a link to Patrick's book recommendation. Thank you for listening to this episode of In-Depth Commercial Real Estate. You can reach us at info at in-depthrealestate.com.